bow before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you. We thank you for the blessings that you've given to each one of us. We pray that what we do during this time would be a blessing to you, that we would honor you during your Sabbath, that we would honor you every day, that we would seek to please you in all that we do. Father, we pray for those sick. We uh, pray that you'd continue to be with Elder Allen and Brother Dennis as they recover from their surgeries. We pray that you would be with all those seeking Yahweh Rafah, seeking your healing. Father, we thank you so much for all the wonderful blessings that you've given us. There's nothing we could ever do to show our thankfulness, to uh, say thank you enough for what you've done. But we thank you, and we ask all this in Yahshua's beloved name. Hallelujah. You all may be seated. It is a uh, blessing to be here, and I'd like to uh, say welcome, and like to... Extend our greetings to those online, to those watching via Facebook or YouTube or, or maybe down the road on, and, uh, on YouTube, I guess, and other platforms. I'd like to give everybody an update, 25 days, that is the days between now and the Feast of Tabernacles, 25 days, so a little bit more than three weeks, but not much, 25 days. I'd also like to uh, congratulate, extend our congratulations to uh, Anthony Rachel Lewis, uh, they uh, gave birth to a, a baby boy this morning, so I'd like to uh, extend our congrats to them. It is certainly a blessing. Or today I want to talk about holding the line, holding the line. And I think we would all agree that morality in this nation is under attack. This nation is not the same nation it was 50 years ago. It's not the same nation that it was 30 years ago. This nation is dramatically shifted since that time is degraded tremendously. We also see this same trend within the church. It's amazing the degradation of the church and what we're seeing there, whether it be the Starbucks or the acceptance of homosexuality or the acceptance of divorce, open divorce, or other forms of immorality, that we are seeing a degradation of the church like, again, at no other time. This nation is crumbling before our eyes. And I believe that it will become much, much worse as time continues on. And we know that Yahshua speaks about this. I'm not going to turn there, but in the Olivet Prophecy, he says that the time before his coming, and I, I believe we could be close, is going to be the worst time this world has ever and will ever see. And as believers, we need to, again, hold the line. We need to have the strength, the courage, the devotion to stay true to Yahweh's word. I want to share with you some statistics, some information, uh, information I actually pulled this morning, and if I can get the clicker to work here, there it is. So this is a slide speaking about the 1950s. It's been a while, a few decades, 1950s. This is from insider.com. It says the idea of the nuclear all-American family was created in the 1950s, for those of us who don't know. And put an emphasis on the family unit and marriage. This time period saw younger marriages, more kids, and fewer divorces. In fact, the divorce rate was 2.5 divorces for every 1,000 people in 1950 and dropped to 2.3 in 1990 or 1955. In 1958, the rate was even slumped to 2.1 with 360,000 divorces. That sounds like a lot of divorces, but... For the American population, that was not a lot of divorces. So we 
see the 1950s focused on the family unit, focused on the importance of the family, the, the father, the mother, the kids, focused on staying together, not separating. This has changed in recent time. This is from the Daily Campus, actually Southern Methodist University, but it says, now that you know the current divorce rates, you can conceptualize this data by studying divorce rates from prior years. You'll find the divorce rates are actually down from uh, 40 years ago when they were closer to 50%. So that's good news. I don't know how many knew here, but divorce rates have actually uh, not as bad. They've improved here recently. While millennials are often criticized for being detached and personal, less concerned about community, they're actually the reason divorce rates are declining so sharply. That's kind of positive news. I didn't know that. Not a whole lot of, we don't say a lot of good things about millennials sometimes. They kind of get a bad, bad um, rap. But here we find that because of this, it is declining. According to marriage and relationship studies, millennials are staying together more than the previous generations were willing to. Through divorce rate, uh, though divorce rates are on the decline, you should still be aware of the reality that many marriages just won't make it. And again, about 40% are still ending in divorce. So that's great news. Very good news, but still way too many. So here is a slide. This is from the U.S. Department of Commerce, and it speaks of single-parent homes. I believe much of the parallels, much of, or much of the perils, I should say, and concerns we're seeing is a result of, um, or the result of uh, single-parent homes. It says between 1960 and 2016, so it's a large gap in time, it says the percentage of children living in homes with two parents decreased from 88 to 69%. That's a big shift. Back then, in the 1960s, most kids had a mother and father. We're not so much anymore. Of those 57.7 million children living in families with two parents, 47.7 million live with two married parents, and 30, uh, 3.0 million live with two unmarried parents. So the point is, it's getting worse, especially single-parent homes. More and more people are living out of wedlock. More people are having children without being married. Therefore, they don't have a father. They don't have a mother, both at home because of divorces. Again, they don't have a mother. They don't have a father at home. And this is not good. Yahweh created marriage between one man and one woman. He did this for a reason, for the child's sake. For the welfare of the child, you need a both a father and mother at home. It doesn't work well when you are missing one of those components. I want to shift gear now and talk about church membership. So this is church membership. This is from Gallup, and uh, this is from 1940 to two, uh, 2020. You can see the, the horrible decline in church membership, 73%. I thought it would be higher, actually, in the 1940s, but it wasn't. 1940, 73% those said that they were affiliated with some sort of church. Now, that has gone down to 47%. So less than half of the people in this country identify as being a member of a church organization. And while the church may have its issues, certainly it is better to be religious than not religious. So this is a very concerning trend we've seen in the last few decades. This was actually probably the most concerning trend I saw when I was doing this research. Again, 1940, 73%. 2020, 
Now we're down to 47%. So we've seen almost half, half a, a decline here with church attendance. Now another graph with the church, change in percentage of U.S. adults with no religious affiliation. So these are those who've said, I have no religious affiliation. I'm not Christian. I, I am essentially agnostic or maybe an atheist. So we see the different generational gaps here. The uh, green line, this marks traditionalists. Traditionalists is anyone who lived 1945 and before. 1945 and before. Not too many traditionalists left, but we see here that not a lot of change. 1998, we find that 4% had no religious affiliation. That's a very small number. We're now 7%, so not a big shift. But again, these are the traditionalists. These are those that are grounded with the traditional concept of America and what it was many, many years ago. So the baby boomers, this is the purple line, and this is those who lived 1946 to 1964. And again, not a big shift, although it's not a good shift. So again, 7% said they had no religious affiliation in 1998. And uh, today, this is 13%, so a difference in 5%. So, again, not a, not a uh, or 6%, not a great change, but not a drastic change. So the next one is Generation X. So Generation X, these are those from 1965 to 1980. And we see there that in 1998-ish, 11%, where now that is 20%. So 20% of Generation X are saying that they, they have no religious affiliation. So we see here that as the generations become younger, that the religious affiliations become, or the lack of religious affiliations become greater. And this is a very serious concern because I believe the thing that made this nation great was that we were a moral nation. We were a moral nation. There is a quote, I'm not going to go through it all, but he came over. Uh, a historian, to understand why America was great. And at the end of the day, he said America is great because America is good. And America was good because America was righteous. America was holy. America was uh, what was, was moral, was ethical. But that's no longer the case. The next generation here, the dotted red line, this represents the millennials in 1981 to 1996, so around 2008-ish, 2010, they were 22%, no religious affiliation. Now that is at 31%. So again, we're seeing a very, very bad direction here, trend, concerning trend, with those who are saying they have no religious affiliations whatsoever. And there's no uh, information here with uh, Generation Z um, so that this is the, again, trend we're seeing with those claiming to have no religious affiliation. I want to share some abortion statistics now. This is from America Life League. Total number of abortions in the U.S. Uh, since uh, from 1973 through 2018, 61.8 million. 61.8 million. I believe the population of Missouri is... Is it 6 million? Sounds about right, 6 million. So that's 10 times the population of Missouri. Think about it that way. Think about it. every single person living in Missouri. 
and you multiply that number by 10, and that gives you the number of abortions we've seen since 1973. And actually, this is just recording to uh, 2018, so there's been more. goes on to say 186 abortions per 1,000 live births, according to the Center for Disease Control. U.S. abortions in 2017 was around 862,000 from the Guttmacher Institute. That's one of the leading institutions who report on this data. Same source for the other statistics here, but abortions per day, uh, 2,362. Abortions per hour, around 98. And one uh, one abortion every 37 seconds. So this is a very, again, concerning trend. Very concerning trend. I believe Yahweh looks at our nation and he looks at the atrocities being committed and he can't be pleased. He can't be pleased. And this is why I believe we're seeing the issues and the problems in this nation. But as believers, we must, again, we must hold the line. Because if we don't, nobody else will. So 13.5 abortions for every 1,000 women aged 15, 15 to 44 in 2017. Now, I'll give you a little bit of good news. Still, way too many abortions. But here's the good news. Here's the statistical number of abortions from 1973 through 2017. And we're actually at the lowest level of abortions uh, ever. So that is good news. So we are seeing maybe people waking up. And I do think the pro-life movement is helping. I think it is educating. I think people are understanding. I think awareness Greater awareness is occurring, and as a result, again, we see a, a fewer abortions, fewer abortions, but again, way too many abortions, way too many abortions, 13.5 for every 1,000 women have an aborted or an abortion. So still way too many abortions, but around 1977, 1978, it was up to 29.3 women out of 1,000 were having abortions. So many, many more, I mean, almost or more than double the abortions in, uh, in, in the uh, late 1970s. So we certainly see a positive trend, but again, still way, way too many abortions. So while we're seeing this positive uh, decline, if you will, in the number of divorces and also abortions, we continue to see some very alarming trends nonetheless, very alarming The fact is many today are no longer even able to recognize what is moral and not moral. They've lost their moral compass. They believe that homosexuality and transgenderism is something to be praised instead of something to be avoided. But as we know, the Bible says something different. The Bible defines sin as as we find here as an abomination. That's what it says. It's an abomination. An abomination is something that is morally and ethically repugnant to the one we worship. Again, as believers, it is our job to hold the line. We began this ministry with really one goal, and that was to preach the truth without compromise. We were tired of the compromise. We were tired of the politics. And we said at that time, if it's just us and the family, that is fine. We had no plans for an assembly. We simply wanted to preach the truth. Well, that remains our goal today. That goal has, the ministry has changed in many ways. But the central theme and why we're here 
and the ethics and morals that drive this ministry has not changed. In this message, I want to focus on three crucial items. And these are items that I believe we need to hold the line with. Number one, ordination. Ordination, leadership. Number two, marriage. And number three, baptism. I want to begin by talking about ordination. One of the themes we find within Yahweh's word is that a minister must be above reproach. That's what it says. A minister must be above reproach. We find this in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. It says, a bishop then must be blameless or above reproach, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given a hospitality apt to teach. So Paul says here that an elder or a bishop must be blameless. What is the meaning of this word blameless? The uh, Greek, Thayer's Greek lexicon, says that this refers to a person that, quote, cannot be reprehended, not open to censor, or irreproachable. A bishop or elder must, have, must not have a moral deficiency that would poorly reflect upon him or upon the assembly. Now, in this passage, Paul lists all the different qualifications of ministers. Today, I want to focus on only two. I want to focus on two qualifications specifically. The first one is found in verse 2, where Paul says that a bishop must be a man of one wife. A man and one wife. Now, what does this mean to be a man and one wife? Where most believe that this refers to not being divorced and remarried. Based on this, someone in this situation would not qualify as a minister. Now, before I go any further, I want to say this. We're not condemning those in this situation. But what we are saying is that as believers, we must ensure that we meet the standard we find within the word. We cannot, de- we cannot lower the standard because we do not qualify. So how do we know this is a reference to divorce and remarriage? So number one, this is a consensus among, amongst most scholars. Number two, we find this standard with a priest in both the old, or it's actually both old, but in the Old Testament and in reference to the millennium. So first example here is in Leviticus 21, verse 7, it says there, they must not marry, they must not marry women to father a prostitution or divorced from their husbands, because priests are holy to their Elohim. So here we find evidence that in the Old Testament, the priests could not be married to a divorced woman, because again, they were holy, they were set apart, and for that reason, They had to be above reproach. They had to be blameless, as we find in the New Testament. Ezekiel 44, verse 22, says this, They must not marry widows or divorced women. They may marry only virgins of Israelite descent or widows of priests. So again, the point here is that they could not marry a divorced woman. In these examples, we find that this was a standard for those in the Old Testament. We also find that this will be the standard for those in the millennium. This is also the standard for ministers today. What concerns me is what we're seeing in the church. 
and even more so in the assemblies. I believe the very best way of maintaining a thriving assembly is to follow Yahweh's word without compromise. I've been around for too long now, and I've seen too many examples. The very best way to have a healthy, thriving, blessed assembly is very, very simple. It is to simply follow the standards. And if you do that, you're going to be blessed. When we do this, we're going to be blessed. We're also going to save ourselves many, many issues. When we try to sweep the sin under the rug. The fact is, when an assembly implodes, normally it's because of some sort of compromise or moral deficiency within that assembly. I've seen assemblies compromise certain situations, sweep them under the rug, ignore them hoping that maybe someday they will, they will not be an issue. But inevitably, what I've seen is they rise up and they become an issue, and they do more damage than if they would have simply dealt with the issue in the first place. You know, for example, I've known more than one minister who was unfaithful to his wife and then wanted to continue in the ministry. I'm sorry, that person no longer qualifies as a minister. When a man commits adultery on his wife, that man no longer qualifies as a minister. Ministers must be held to a high standard. And if a minister, an active minister, commits adultery on his wife, that minister no longer qualifies to serve in that position. Now, that's not to say that minister cannot be forgiven. We're not saying that person cannot be forgiven. Yahweh can forgive that man. Yahweh can reconcile that marriage. But he is now not above reproach, and he should not be serving in the ministry. An assembly or an organization is only as strong as its leadership. If we have ministers in the assemblies who don't meet the qualifications, this will negatively impact the assemblies. And I've seen it. In fact, one of the other issues is or so-and-so, he's ordained, he's divorced, why can't I get divorced? We must set the example. We must set the standard. This is why it's so important that we can't compromise and that we must abide by the standards, that we must hold the line as we find within Scripture. I want to look at one more qualification in verse 6. It says they're not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Paul warns here against ordaining a novice or someone new in the faith. Over the years, I've seen many examples of this and the problems it causes. You know, I started preaching and doing the work at the age of 19, but I wasn't ordained until right before my 30th birthday. Our policy here at YRM is that before someone is ordained, they must, number one, be doing the work already, and number two, assuming they're not local, they must already have an established ministry or fellowship. I've always been puzzled why you would ordain somebody when there wasn't a need. I don't understand that. If there's a need, wonderful. If the man is doing the work, wonderful. But the man should be doing the work. You don't ordain somebody hoping they can do the job. You ordain somebody once they've proven their worth. 
And that's when you ordain somebody. Paul says here that we should not ordain a novice. We should not ordain to somebody who is new. By our bylaws, we can't ordain somebody for years. We don't even have that option. We've cuffed our hands, handcuffed our hands for that reason. Because scripture says that we should not ordain a novice, somebody new to the faith. Again, when we follow the standards, we're going to be blessed. We're going to have a happy, healthy, and thriving assembly. But only when we follow the standards. I want to transition and talk about marriage. Marriage is an important topic. I've been talking about marriage here lately the last few weeks. For the last several decades, I believe marriage has been horribly diminished in, in multiple ways. Number one, the biblical hierarchy of the family has all but been dissolved. It's very sad to see. The Bible shows that the husband is the head or the authority within the marriage. Today, though, this seems to be the reverse. The wife and the children are now the dominant faction within the family. The father has been demoted to the bottom. As I mentioned here recently, I blame much of this on the feminist movement. It has changed our culture in a very bad way, in a very concerning way. Even though we've seen a small decline in the number of divorces, we're still seeing way too many in this nation. And it's causing many problems on our culture. As we saw earlier, the number of divorces in the 1950s were extremely low. In 1958, only 2.1 people out of 1,000 were divorcing. Today, though, marriage continues to be a throwaway institution. If it doesn't work out, let's throw it away and start over. And that's how so many view marriage. They view marriage as not a permanent institution, not a lifelong institution, not a serious commitment, but something fickle, something that we can simply get rid of, something we can remove, something we can, again, throw away if it doesn't work. Yahweh says that marriage is a lifelong institution. We will see that in a few moments. In Malachi 2, verse 6, Yahweh says there he hates divorce. That's what he says. He hates divorce. Yahweh doesn't want divorce. Yahweh doesn't like divorce, especially for his people. Why do you suppose he hates divorce? What is it about divorce that displeases him? Whether it's been our own family or someone we know, most of us have seen examples of what divorce does to a family, especially to kids and to children. Divorce does heal. It does horrible things. According to an article from Healthline dated May 7th of 2020, here are 10 ways children suffer from divorce. They feel angry. They may withdraw socially. Their grades suffer. They feel separation anxiety. Little ones may regress. Their eating and sleeping patterns change. They may pick, uh, pick sides between the father and mother. They go through depression. They engage in risky behaviors. And they face their own relationship struggles. That's one of the worst things about divorce, statistically speaking. If you come from a divorced family, you are more likely to divorce because it's accepted. 
This is why Yahweh hates divorce. From the New Testament, we know that divorce is for, or we know that marriage is for life. Marriage is for life with no exceptions. Here's what Yahshua says in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, 9 through 11, it says, And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except he be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. And whoso marries her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Now listen to what the disciples said. It's always intrigued me. It's always intrigued me, their response. He says, his disciples saying to him, if the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. You see, they understood the gravity of what he was saying. They understood the seriousness of what he was saying. And their response immediately was, if this is the way it works, if this is the standard, if this is how we must abide within our marriage, maybe it's best we do not marry. They understood the gravity of marriage. Yahshua responds, but he said unto them, all men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. Yahshua begins here by saying that except for fornication, that if one divorces his or her spouse, that they then commit adultery. By the way, this is often known as the exception clause. There's a lot of debate as to this. Now, the word fornication is from the Greek pernia. Pernia is a very broad word. I want to read how we defined pernia from the Restoration Study Bible. It says, fornication, derived from the Greek pernia, it means general immorality, including holotry, adultery, and incest. In the current context, pernia specifically refers to parental premarital relations. Scripture says that once marriage is consummated, it can be dissolved only through death. Matthew 19.6, Romans 7, verse 2. Since pernia here refers to premarital relations, divorce is permissible only in the engagement period. So that's what it says in the Restoration Study Bible. We see here that divorce is only permissible in the engagement phase or the betrothal phase of the Marriage, and only for fornication. Based on scripture, marriage begins at engagement. This is something many people don't understand. Marriage begins at engagement. I'm not going to read it, but we see the example in Matthew 1 verse 19. After Joseph discovered that Mary was with child, scripture shows that he was going to divorce her privately, going to put her away, divorce her privately, but here's the thing, they were only engaged. They were betrothed. They were not married yet. But scripture says that he was still going to divorce her. Why? Why would he have to divorce her? He had to divorce her because marriage begins at engagement. We don't understand that today. We also see evidence for this in the Old Testament from the story of Lot. I'm not going to read that, but you can go back if you want and look there. His daughter's had husbands, but they were, or they were not yet uh, married. You see, there's a difference between how we view marriage today and how the Bible views marriage. During the New Testament, the man and woman would sign a contract at betrothal, binding one another. They would have a contract, a commitment. And again, the only way to terminate this 
commitment was if fornication was committed. So again, as Yahshua explains here, once a marriage has been finalized, once it's been sanctified, it is for life. It is for life with no exceptions. Now again, notice here how the apostles responded to Yahshua's message. Again, I'm always intrigued at how they responded. They said that if this is the case, that if this is the standard, maybe we should not get married. Yahshua then replied by saying that not all men could receive this saying, say they to whom it is given. Within a ministry who cares about marriage, that cares about marriage, and that opposed to divorce and preaches that marriage is for life, I understand that not all men can receive this saying. Because believe you me, we've had many, many not receive this saying. By this alone, it should be obvious that the standard Yahshua gave here was pretty high. High enough that even the apostles thought twice about the commitment of marriage. I believe it should force us or make us pause and consider the commitment of marriage. I want to consider a few more passages from the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11, it says, And unto the married I command, not yet I, but the master. Let not the wife depart from her husband, but and if she depart, listen, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. So what message do we find here from Paul? He says, that if a couple separates, that they have two options. And notice it doesn't say divorce, by the way. It says separation. This is not divorce. This is separation. Sometimes separation is needed. It doesn't say divorce here. But if they separate, they have two options. Number one, they are to remain unmarried. Or they are to reconcile that marriage. Notice here that divorce and remarriage is not an option. Doesn't say it doesn't work out, forget it, throw it away, start over. Doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say here that if you can't reconcile that you're free to remarry another. The only two options, again, is to reconcile that marriage or to remain unmarried. Those are the options. The reality is it's hard, and most ministers Rather not rock the boat. And this is why so few are willing to preach this message. They are unwilling to preach it because it's hard. And you do receive persecution from it. The problem is, because of this, because ministers are unwilling to preach, because ministers are unwilling to speak the word, Marriage in our culture, in our nation, is, is crumbling. It's now broken. I put the blame on this, on the shoulders of those who minister. These are the men who should be speaking out. If every church in this nation would simply preach morality, it doesn't matter what denomination it is. 
It doesn't matter what you believe with the Son, Father, and Holy Spirit. It doesn't, doesn't matter what you call him. If we would simply all preach morality, we would see a revival like never before in this nation. If we simply preached the word. Listen, this is not difficult. Yahweh's word is so simple. The message we find within the word is so simple. The hard part is applying and living it. Most people, they don't want to know what it says because they know if they know, they have to do it. So they rather not know. They rather live in ignorance. And Romans 7 verse 2, Paul explains that marriage is for life. It's an important passage. 7, 2 through 3 says, For the woman which had the husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. And the reverse is also true, by the way. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she is married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband is dead, she is free from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Paul confirms here that marriage is for life. He says here that we are bound to our spouse as long as we live. As long as we live, we are obligated to fulfill that commitment that we made at marriage. Once a marriage is sanctified, there is no biblical defense for divorce and remarriage. I want to stop here and say this. I, we, we don't believe Yahweh condemns those, all those in this situation. We don't believe Yahweh condemns all those in this situation that, were, that, were, that was done in ignorance. I didn't read it, but Paul says in verse 1 that he's speaking to those who know the law, who, to those who know the standards, to those who understand the word. Also from Acts 17.30, we know that Yahweh says wings that are ignorance, but then commands all men to repent everywhere. Another consideration is the fact that ministers must be a man and one wife. This tells me that there were probably those in the assembly who did not meet this qualification. But once we do know, once we understand, once we are aware of the standard, we have an obligation to live it. And that's the position of this ministry. We're not condemning all those who did this, not knowing, not understanding. But once we do know, once we understand the truth... We should be living and applying that truth. So if we were divorced and remarried and did not understand, at this point, we need to be committed on this marriage. We need to realize that our marriage is for life and that we should never seek divorce or separation at this point. In addition to realizing that marriage is for life, it's also important to marry only within the faith. And this is something... I want to impress upon the young people. And young people, I say young teenagers. It's amazing how quickly you grow up. Two, three, four years. You may be married. It's it's, it's amazing how quickly that happens. It's important to marry someone in the faith. It's important to, I mean, frankly, I don't agree with those parents who allow their sons or daughters to date, if you will, outside the faith. I don't believe that this should be done based on the word. 
1 Corinthians 7, verse 39 says, A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband be dead, she has a liberty to be married to whom she will. So again, we see there once more that marriage is for life. Paul closes here with saying, though only in the master, or only in the Messiah. So Paul says, we see here that we are only to marry in Messiah. We are to marry in the faith. We're not to marry outside the faith. Why do you suppose Paul said this? What was the motivation behind Paul's admonition here? Oftentimes, when we marry outside the faith, we have conflict with our spouse. Not always. Sometimes. Many times. In some cases, it will oppose what we believe. They will make it harder on us to follow Yahweh. Now, this concept is nothing new. This is not something we find inherently within the New Testament. We also find this concept in the Old Testament. For example, there, and he explains why he had this prohibition. He told Israel, if you do this, they're going to turn your hearts away from me, and you're going to follow their mighty ones. That was the reason Yahweh said, don't marry with these nations. Don't marry outside of, of, of this faith. Paul is repeating this message in the New Testament. We're all familiar with Solomon, I think. We all know that Solomon had many, many wives. We know that when Solomon was old, that his many wives turned away his heart. We know that Solomon forsook, in many ways, Yahweh's worship. We know that Solomon worshipped these other mighty ones. We know that Solomon's heart was not right. And we know that all of this was because of these wives that he married. They pulled his heart away from Almighty Yahweh. And Solomon's life ended in tragedy, in my opinion. Solomon was, was this glimmer of great success. Yahweh gave him wisdom upon all men. Solomon had everything a man could ever need or want. But he allowed his many wives to pull him away from what meant most. So this is why we're to follow the word, why we're to hold the line. And this includes, again, marriage. This includes when we find a spouse. Again, we see here that Paul has these same concerns in the New Testament. If our spouse doesn't respect the Sabbath, this will likely impact how we observe the Sabbath. So to prevent this, we're to marry only within the Messiah only marry within the faith. That's what scripture says. Remember that this message is about holding the line, not compromising, doing what is right scripturally, ethically. When we ignore what Yahweh says within his word, there are negative consequences. This is why, and, and, and listen, the, what we are preaching, what I am preaching today is at the core of what this ministry is. This is why there is YRM. This is why we began this ministry. Because we wanted to preach the truth without compromise. And if it was just us and the family, we were fine with that. Because we were tired of the compromise. We were tired of the, the, the politics. We simply wanted to preach the truth without compromise, without concern, 
If people don't like it, that's fine, because it's Yahweh's word. And frankly, it doesn't matter what we like. It doesn't matter if we like the message or not. What matters is the source of the message. If it's Yahweh's message, if he is a source, then we are to follow. We're not to fight it. We're not to ignore it. We're to follow it. That's the cornerstone of this ministry. I want to transition to our last topic now, and that is baptism. Baptism. Over the years, I've noticed more ministers baptizing children and teenagers. I want to speak to that for just a few minutes. In many ways, this reminds me of what the Roman church does with infant baptism. It's really the same thing, maybe not quite as young, but same thing, same principle. This is not a good idea. We see uh, in, in Acts 2, verse 38, that there is an essential part that requires maturity. Acts 2, verse 38 says, And Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Yahshua Messiah, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We find here that baptism begins with what? Baptism begins with repentance. Before we can be immersed, before we go under the water, we must acknowledge that we've repented of our sins. Now, the word repent comes from the Greek metanoe, and Strong's defines this word as to think differently afterwards. That is to reconsider morally, feel compunction, the Thayer's lexicon states, quote, to change one's mind, heart for the better, to amend heartily with abhorrence of one's past sins. The question is, does a child or even a teenager have the maturity, the capacity to repent, to think differently, to have an abhorrence for their past sins, and to be committed to live a life for Yahweh from that point forward? Does a child, does a teenager have the maturity? Well, there may be a few exceptions. Well, some might, most do not. In my experience, I would never um, be comfortable baptizing a child or even a teenager, believing that they have the maturity to commit their lives to such an important step. I don't believe that's what we find in Scripture. The fact is, most in their teens are not fully developed, They're, they are not fully matured. And for that reason, they are not ready for baptism. I've known some very committed teens. Some very committed teens. I've seen some of these committed teens forsake the faith as they grew into adulthood. Now again, we would hope and pray that our young people here would realize the importance of the faith. They would realize Why it's important to follow the word of Almighty Yahweh. It's very, very simple. I look back at my life. When I was 16 years old, I I was raised in the faith. When I was 16 years old, I told my best friend at the time, I said, when I'm 18, I'm gone. And it's 18, something happened. And, And obviously, I believe Yahweh was working with me. And this overwhelming desire to do something bigger than me came upon me. And I prayed that day. I prayed for Yahweh's wisdom. I prayed for his knowledge. 
I pray for his zeal. And I know that my life is so much better than it would have been if I would have forsaken the faith. I cannot impress upon the young people enough the blessings and the benefit there is in living the faith. Believe you me, if you depart, if you leave, there will be consequences to that decision. Not only internal consequences, but consequences in this life. Some of these people that's left the faith, I look back and they're just, their life is in a horrible mess. And that's not hard to understand why. You look at the decisions they've made, and you understand why their life is in a mess. Their decisions are the reason their life is in a mess. Very, very simple. It is not complicated. When we follow Yahweh, when we do it his way, when we are resolute, when we choose to do it his way, we're going to be blessed. When we choose the other path, we will not be blessed. So again, I want to impress upon all the young people this, this urgency of following Yahweh now. Solomon, and, and I'm not going to turn there, but in Ecclesiastes, he says something to the effect of, uh, to the youth, he says, don't, for, don't forget about your creator. Don't forget about your creator. So I'm telling y'all now, don't forget about your creator, especially those who are young adults or teenagers. Don't forget about your creator. And believe you me, if you choose to forsake this path, you will regret doing so. Yahweh's word is the greatest thing we can ever do in this life. If we follow his word, we're going to be blessed beyond measure. Sure, we're going to have challenges in life. Everybody has challenges in life. But if we do it his way, we're going to be blessed. And we're not going to suffer as so many people suffer. I see so many bad situations. People who contact the ministry, and, and uh, it, it's troublesome. But then I also understand why they're in those situations. I'm not going to go through all the situations or all the examples I've seen over the years, but some of them are just horrible situations. And there's no good resolution. They call us wanting a solution. They call us wanting some sort of, some sort of way to mitigate what they've done. And we can help in many ways, but sometimes it's really hard to completely resolve the issue. Sometimes I'm reminded of David. We all know David. David committed some pretty horrible sins. As a result, as a result David suffered. David repented, but he still suffered. And that's something I think is important to keep in mind. So again, for all these reasons, we will not immerse or baptize those who are still children or teenagers. Now, what is the age? What is the age when somebody is accountable or somebody is able to be immersed? Some might say 13, based on the Jewish bar mitzvah. We really don't see that in scripture, Jewish bar mitzvah. Supposedly, that's the age when a boy is a man, according to the Jews, but that's not something we see scripturally. What we see in the Bible is this age of 20, is the age as we label it the age of accountability. Well, let me give you a few examples. Exodus 30, verse 14, it says, Everyone that passes among them that are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering unto Yahweh. So here, all those 20 and above had to give an offering. Numbers 1 Three, it says, from 20 years and 
upward, who are all able to go forth to warn Israel, thou and Aaron shall number them by their names. So to go into war, he had to be 20. Now this last one here really solidifies it for me. Numbers 32.11. Surely none of the men that came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land which I swore unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, because they have not wholly or completely followed me. So we see from these examples, the Bible defines the age of accountability as the age of 20. This is the age we believe someone is able to be immersed in Yahshua's name. The last example, by the way, is the one I normally refer to. We see in that last example that all those 20 years and older died in the wilderness. They died in the wilderness because Yahweh held them responsible for their sin. But all those under the age of 20 were not held responsible for their sin. They were allowed to go into the promised land. But all those 20 and older, they died in the wilderness. That is the age of accountability. That is the age of judgment. That is the age when we are responsible for our own actions and behavior. And that is the age that we consider baptism. We need to also remember that Yahshua himself was baptized around the age of 30. wasn't 20. Some said we should wait until 30. Or we're good with 20. But there's no reason 30 is not a good number either. Yahshua was immersed at 30 years of age or around 30 years of age. As Yahweh's people, we must again hold the line. And based on what we see in Scripture, baptizing children or teenagers is not holding the line. It is compromise and is really doing a disservice, I believe, to those kids. Because you are committing them to a life that many will not be able to commit to. You are doing a very disservice. You are doing a disservice to those children who will not follow through with that commitment. Now we see another trend something else I want to address, and that is those in a position to baptize. Some people believe that they anybody can immerse, anybody can baptize. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what position you're in, everybody has this authority, everybody has this ability. Well, it's not what we find in Acts 8. I want to read that account, Acts 8. 12 through 17, it says, But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of Yahweh and the name of Yahshua Messiah, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard the Samaria had received the word of Elohim, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he or it was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Master Yahshua, then laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So we see here that Deacon Philip had the authority to baptize. He went down and preached the word and baptized many. Where after the baptism, we find here that Peter and John came down to lay on hands. Keep in mind that Peter and John were considered not only apostles, but also elders. We find that in the word. 
So from this example, what did we learn? Or While a deacon can baptize into Yahshua's name, it appears that only an elder can lay on hands. But keep in mind that both a deacon and an elder, they're both ordained. They're both considered a minister within Yahweh's ministry. Now, what's the difference, just real quick, between baptism and the laying on of hands? What's the difference between baptism and the laying on of hands? Well, baptism is a burial of our old man and the washing away of our sins. So that's baptism. The laying on of hands is the receiving or granting of the Holy Spirit. And that's why it's essential to do both. I've seen some assemblies that only do the baptism, and I'm, I'm wondering why, why, not, why not do the laying on of hands? They just don't do it. So we see here that not just anyone has the authority to baptize. And there's other examples. In fact, I'm going to share with you a list. I had a, I've been asked this many, many times over the years. So a few years ago, I decided to go through and chronicle or compile all the different examples of ordination or anointing. So here's a list. It's kind of small. I do apologize for that. But here's quite a few examples. So these are examples of anointing, ordination, or baptism. Moses appointed or anointed Aaron as high priest. Or again, Moses was appointed by Yahweh. Moses anointed Aaron's sons as priest. Moses anointed Joshua as leader of Israel. So we see this concept of succession through anointing, whether it was baptism, whether it was the leader of Israel, whether it was a priest. Going to see uh, Samuel anointed Saul as king. And I have scriptures here in case you want to document those. Uh, Samuel anointed David as king. I mentioned that, I think. Zadok the priest anointed Solomon as king. Apostles anointed the sick. So we see there that not just anybody anointed the sick. It was the apostles. And that's based on Mark 6.13. Yahweh anointed Yahshua, it says. Yahshua anointed healed the blind man. Apostles laid their hands, ordained the seven deacons. Zach 6.6. Deacon Philip baptized apostles Peter and John laid on hands for the Holy Spirit. We saw that in Acts 8. Peter baptized group, uh, a group of Gentiles during his visit to Cornelius. That was Acts 10. Paul baptized and laid hands on disciples in Ephesus, Acts 19, verse 6. Timothy was ordained by the body of elders, 2 Timothy 4.14. And the elders anoint the sick, James chapter 5, verse 14. So we see from all these examples, whether it's anointing, whether it's ordination or baptism, these items were always done by somebody ordained at the office. Not anyone can simply do these items. These are sacred rites, if you will, that requires the ordination of somebody within the ministry. This was true in the Old Testament. This remains true in the New. But again, people are no longer holding to the word they're no longer no longer holding the line and they feel that anybody can do this and that's not what we find scripturally scripture says it shouldn't be a novice and scripture says that it needs to be somebody ordained to that office that's what we find scripturally i want to close now with a story so a story most of us are probably familiar familiar with this is a story of when king saul offered the burnt offering how many here remember that story? Okay, most, most of you remember the story. I'm going to go through it kind of quickly here, but 
as you can remember, Saul and his army was in a face-off with the Philistines. They were, they were at odds with the Philistines. The only caveat is that Saul could not attack until Samuel offered the burnt offering. So he had to sit there and wait until Samuel came and offered the burnt offering. And then Saul and his armies could then attack the Philistines. Now in the story, Samuel said that he would be there in seven days. Or seven days had come and gone and no Samuel. Saul was concerned. Saul, that the army was becoming restless. And he was concerned what they would do if they could not attack and, and, and move forward. So, as any good and responsible king would do, voice of sarcasm, by the way, he decided to take it upon himself to offer this burnt offering. Now, as soon as he does this, lo and behold, Samuel shows up. When this happened, he harshly reprimanded Saul. He said that told Saul that he, he had done foolishly and that he had broken the commandment of Yahweh. He also told Saul that because of this act of rebellion that the kingdom would be torn away, that, he, that, that the kingdom would not continue under him. Now we, also, we, we know from the story that eventually David became king. So what was so wrong with Saul making this offering? It's just burning some meat, right? It's putting some meat on the, on the altar and burning that and has a sweet savor to get. What was so wrong with Saul? After all, he, he's in a pickle. He's in a situation. Samuel told him he would be there in seven days and, and, and seven days have come and gone and no Samuel. The troops are getting restless. They may lose the battle because of this one simple task of offering the offering, sacrificing this offering. So he does this, and again, we, we know the results. So what was wrong with this is he did not have the authority to make this offering. This is how serious Yahweh is. This is how serious Yahweh is with his standards. This is one example, I believe, showing that when Yahweh says, this is the way it should work, we are to follow in that command. We're not to compromise. We're not to, we're not to color the lines. We are to follow that command. We are to hold the line. This is why this concept of holding the line is so important. Because Yahweh cares. He cares. And we see so many examples in Scripture of why and where he cares. When we deviate from his standards, when we deviate from his word, bad things happen. Saul found that out. But when we follow his word, we are blessed beyond measure. Well, I pray that this message has been a blessing to you. I hope it's been a good reminder that we must follow the word. And that compromise is never a good idea. So I would encourage all of us to hold the line to be an example to others, to follow Yahweh. And again, I'm going to speak to the youth just real quick. This is a very serious issue. This is a very, very serious message. Right now, those who are 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, it is a very pivotal time in your life. The decisions you make today may very well follow you for the remainder of your days. If the choice you make is to ignore and to forsake your maker, there will be consequences to that choice. If you choose, though, to follow him, I can assure you based on my own life, 
that you will be blessed. So I would encourage everybody, but especially the young people, to really think long and hard about their life, where they're going, and the commitment they will or will not make. Because what we do, again, will determine how our life goes. And I just cannot impress upon everybody here the gravity and the need of following Yahweh, holding that line, and not compromising his word. May Yahweh bless you.